Welcome to the sermon podcast of Northridge Presbyterian Church in Dallas, Texas. I'm Betsy Sweetenberg, the pastor here, and I hope that in this podcast, you see what we seek to do week after week, approaching the stories of our faith with a holy curiosity, not shutting the book because the stories are hard or there are truths we'd rather ignore. Instead, approaching scripture, trusting that God will meet us there, full of grace and truth, teaching us something new about how we are to live in this world God so loves. Martin Luther once said that there are three conversions necessary to the Christian life. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse. Today is Reformation Sunday, and it also happens to be the start of stewardship season in our life together, the season of the church's life where we intentionally focus on our relationship with money in order to grow in faith. So what better time to heed the reformer Martin Luther's words and talk about the conversion of the purse. Now, if you were raised not to talk about money and bringing it up in public makes you feel a little bit anxious and uncomfortable because it's just not a polite thing to do, I was raised the same way. And that's why I asked the ushers to go ahead and lock all the doors so we can all get uncomfortable together. On a more serious note, though, I actually love stewardship season. It serves an administrative function in the life of the church. This is how we make our budget. We can't figure out what ministries are possible in the year ahead without your financial commitments, but that's not why I like stewardship season. I like stewardship season, and I like talking about money at church because I know how important it is for people of faith to be in right relationship with money. Now, whether you are religious or not, money is likely one of the hardest relationships to manage. That is just a fact of life. It's a really fraught thing, which is why money is so often the source of conflict in pain in relationships with people we love the very most, spouses, parents, children, Think about all the emotional conversations that you have with the people you are closest to in life as you make decisions about how to live your days. You know these conversations. A diagnosis comes out of the blue, and you've got to figure out how you're going to work in these unexpected medical bills. Negotiating with a child which college is the best fit. Weighing daycare options. Should you do daycare? Should you have a nanny? Should one parent cut back their, their hours at work or give up the job altogether? Considering whether you want to leave a job that affords you a lovely life but doesn't leave you any time to live it. Approaching retirement and figuring out what it means to move to a fixed income. Buying a second home. Selling a house and downsizing now that the kids are gone. Finally taking that big trip that you've dreamed about forever. Buying a car. These are big conversations that you have with the people you love most. These are likely emotional conversations that you have with the people you love the most. And whether you recognize it or not, 
they all come down to money. And money is never neutral. It always comes dressed up in other stuff. Emotions, memories, hopes, despair, which is why talking about money can be a really unruly and fraught thing. It's why a lot of times we'd rather just ignore it. But don't you know if money is so hard for so many of us, then God must care about it? God's not going to leave us hung out to dry on an issue that is so crucial to each of our lives. Now, I think a lot of times talking about money can be so fraught in our personal lives that we don't even want to entertain the thought of bringing money and faith together. We assume that once you add faith into the mix, it's just going to be even harder. But the scriptures are actually full of teaching about money. And at the heart of what scriptures have to tell us about money is this hope that people of faith will get in right relationship with money so that money can become a source of joy and gratitude in our lives, not something that is a source of pain. So it is true that money is never neutral, but money doesn't have to be a negative thing. And here's what I know. Your relationship with money and the way you offer your money to God can be one of the very most transformative parts of your faith. Your money can become a way to live your faith instead of something that gets in the way of your faith or something that feels like it's off limits from your faith. And so as we approach these weeks together where we think intentionally about our relationship with money, I have been thinking and praying a lot about what scriptures are going to be most meaningful to us and to this community. And I kept coming back to this story that gets told in each of the four Gospels. It's the story, as you heard me tell the kids, of the woman with the alabaster jar. Now, this is a story of extravagant generosity in each of the four tellings. And if there is a word that doesn't get associated with Presbyterians, extravagance is it. In fact, opposing extravagance is in part what fueled the Protestant Reformation. That's part of what we were protesting. Protest as in Protestant. But we do... We pride ourselves on being sensible, frugal even. Plenty of people will say that's why Presbyterians say the Lord's Prayer the way that they do. We would much rather have our debts forgiven than our trespasses forgiven. But we worship a God who is extravagantly generous with each of us. And I do believe that God's hope for each of us is to know the joy that can only come from being extravagantly generous with our stuff, with our money. There is no other way to get to the joy that comes from being generous with your money. And so we're going to live in this text for the next several weeks. We're going to explore this story and see what it has to teach us about 
living as people who are the right kind of extravagant, because not all extravagance is bad. We're going to see what this story can teach us about what it means to be people who are extravagantly generous. Now, each of the four Gospels tell this story with the same basic plot point. You may know this story. There's a group of people gathered for dinner and just enjoying their meal, but all of a sudden they get interrupted. And in walks a woman, and she's carrying an alabaster jar full of oil, and she just walks right up and she anoints Jesus with the oil, which shocks the dinner guest. This oil was important stuff. So the men at the table are appalled. As my friend and teacher, Anna Carter Florence, says, this was not the oil for back rubs or babies or hairstyling. This was not the sort of thing a person offered around casually as if it was just a plate of hors d'oeuvres. The oil in this jar had a serious, sacred function. It wasn't to be broken into to serve the living, but the dead. You see, that oil was used to anoint people. Well, the people with the means to afford it for burial. It was a really, really important symbol in those days, which explains why in every gospel version of this story, after the woman anoints Jesus, the men at the table, sorry men, they just splutter about sharing what a waste it is. That ointment could have been sold and the money given to the poor, they say. Now remember how I said money is never neutral? We have feelings about money even when it's not ours. How easy is it to offer suggestions about what other people should do with their money? What other organizations should do with their money? What our government should do with the money? But that's not my point. In the end, Jesus comes back and he defends this woman's act of extravagant generosity. In every telling of this story, the gospel writers make a big deal about what this woman does, about the fact that she anoints Jesus. And they even try to work in some rationale for this anointing as they tell the story. Now, we will never know why she did what she did, but we do know this from the way that the story gets told in each of the Gospels. We know that this woman anoints Jesus out of a place of deep, heartfelt conviction. She's not doing this for shock value. She's not some attention-seeking gal. She anoints Jesus because she believes he's the Son of God. But Mark, in his telling, sneaks in a significant detail that I think makes this story come to life. There's so much speculation about who Jesus is in the story, but I think Mark sneaks in a detail that tells us something about who this woman is, and I think it says something about who we are, too. So listen now to the story of the woman with the alabaster jar, Mark's version. This comes from chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. While Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, 
a woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard. And she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, why was the ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's just one detail he slips in there, but it tells us so much about this woman. She broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. She broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. Now, Matthew, Luke, and John all tell us that she made a scene by anointing Jesus, but Mark tells us that she made a scene and a mess. You think you're shocked. It would have been much more shocking to the people at that dinner party because this jar was never supposed to be opened. An alabaster jar would have been an expensive treasure on its own in those days, but the oil inside, well, that was pure extravagance. It was worth a year of wages to most people. What if you broke something worth one year's salary? What if you watch your child or your grandchild break something worth one year of your salary? Now, the people who could afford this oil, they would buy it, and they would put it in a really nice alabaster jar, and they would tuck it away, saving it for their funerals. An alabaster jar of oil is completely ceremonial. It's one final way to signal wealth and status and importance. So once you can afford the oil and you purchase it, there's no need to do anything other than tuck it away which is why it was so shocking that this woman took her jar off the shelf at her home and marched it into this dinner party. That jar was meant to be stoppered up and wait around until she met her expiration date. It was meant to be stuffed away because there was no use for it now. And as if carrying in the jar wasn't odd enough, right there in front of Jesus, she broke it open. Now, the word that Mark uses for break open is the same word that gets used in Scripture for breaking chains and tablets and bones. That seemingly simple word creates an echo chamber back to the beginning of Scripture, and that's the point. That's what Mark remembers about this encounter, and that's what Mark wants to be sure we see. And that's why Mark's version of this story is so important to us. 
Mark doesn't let us skip ahead to the anointing of Jesus without showing us that this woman had to do something extreme before she could be extravagantly generous. She had to take that jar that was never intended to be shared and smash it wide open. She couldn't anoint Jesus until she dealt with the things that were silently killing her. That's what that jar signaled, death. She had to be honest about what was broken in her life. She had to refuse to let her secrets and pain and grief silently bleed away life any longer. The way Mark sees it, extravagant generosity is only possible after deep honesty and vulnerability. I can just imagine that she carried that jar in with conviction because she knew if anyone was capable of transforming all that was dead and broken in her life, it was Jesus. So she did the only thing she could think to do. She smashed the jar. She crushed the chains that bound her. She crushed the bones that haunted her. She smashed a tablet on the backs of idols. She refused to let those things silently kill her any longer. Have you ever tried to keep a beach ball underwater in the deep end of a pool? You can do it, but it takes all the strength you've got. It's like keeping a secret or like pretending everything is fine when your life is actually in pieces. It is possible to do it, but it'll sap every last ounce of energy you've got. We've all got beach balls that we just try to push down right underneath the surface, things that we're afraid others will judge us by if only they knew. That's human. But guess what happens when you let that ball come out of the water? It doesn't magically disappear, but it does get a whole heck of a lot lighter. I wonder what those things are in your life. I wonder what's broken in our lives. A relationship? A job? Finances? Health? I wonder what behavior patterns fester that we aren't proud of. What idols we're secretly worshiping, maybe without even our knowing it. Popularity? Success? Status symbols? Control? Maybe not in this congregation, but I know that some others like control. What, change are, what chains are binding us? Family secrets? Regrets? I wonder what you've stoppered up and stuffed away because it feels safer to let it kill you slowly from a dark corner than to give it any daylight. I know you've got those things. I've got them too. And all those secrets or those broken parts of our lives, they influence our money. They influence how we think about it, how we spend it, how we don't spend it and hoard it. Money loves to masquerade around in our secrets and regrets and emotions because money is never neutral. And sometimes it's our brokenness that makes us think if we just have a little more money, we'll be able to pay off the brokenness. We'll be able to solve the brokenness in our lives. 
You know that odd scripture that says you must lose your life to find it? I think that's what Mark is showing us how to do with this story. This woman loses her life. Better yet, she destroys her life. She smashes it to pieces or what she thought was life. She'd made a life trying to keep the pain and the hurt, whatever it is, we'll never know for sure, just below the surface because as long as she had that alabaster jar which showed her success, nothing else mattered. What's the name of the alabaster jar that you need to smash so that you can fully live? I would love to go for a walk with each of you and hear your answer to that question. I want to know what chains are binding you. I want to know what bones are haunting you. Not only because I care about you, but I also want you to know without a doubt that Jesus is in the business of transforming pain and brokenness. Not just for the woman in the story, but for you and for me too. Judy is a neighbor of ours right here in Texas, and she knows something about brokenness. Years ago, she had just rolled on to the session at her church, and just like at our church, it was expected that the elders, the leaders in the congregation, would lead the way when it came to talking about money and when it came to making a pledge and giving their money. And it was stewardship season at Judy's church. And if ever there was a time for someone to make a tentative offering, a tentative pledge, it was that time in Judy's life and her husband John's life. They had a lot going on. They had a son who they both suspected had a really unhealthy relationship with drugs. But they didn't know how bad it was, and they also didn't really know how to talk to each other about it. Judy and John were both so torn up about their son, but they did what so many people do, and instead of acknowledging it, they pushed it aside. They tried to ignore it. So their marriage drifted apart, and they started living side by side, but not face to face, if you know what that's like with someone you love. There was a world of hurt between the two of them, and things just got stuck. And it felt like the pain was just compounding between the two of them. But it came time for stewardship season at church, and Judy started reading some scriptures. She had never really read scriptures about uh, money and faith, and she started reading in the Old Testament what it says about tithing. And so she talked to her husband. She said, I think that we should try being percentage givers. This led to a long conversation about them, about their finances, and whether this was something that they could really do. But Judy says, you know, based on what I read, I thought maybe we'll be blessed financially if we do this, and it wouldn't be the worst thing at this season in our lives when there's so much hurt to experience some blessing. As Judy tells it, in the midst of all these conversations about their money, their son came home and approached her and her husband and said, Mom and Dad, I know you think I have a drug problem, and you're right, but it's worse than you think. 
and I need help. And so they began to reach out to, he asked for their help in reaching out to treatment centers. But right then in that conversation, it was like the dam broke for their family. The alabaster jar that they had shoved away in the closet just shattered in an instant with his words. The thing they had tried to ignore or couldn't find words to talk about for so long was just right there out in the open. And all three of them sobbed, and they had a big family hug, and that was the beginning of the Hartmans being able to talk about everything else that was broken in their lives, because that was just the tip of the iceberg. They were able to look at each other face to face and talk about all that was broken in their marriage. And as Judy reflects on this experience, she said, you know, I did that maybe selfishly. I thought I was going to be blessed financially. But all of a sudden, I saw these blessings that were so much greater than money. I feel like I got rich in the things of God. I had a son in recovery. My house was ho happy again, a healthy marriage. I got the chance to know my son. My son got the chance to know his parents. It wasn't some magic fix, but it did change everything. And they weren't working so hard to avoid the broken parts of their lives. They had the energy to be generous. And because they were generous, they were able to recognize the generosity that they were receiving. John and Judy continue their extravagant generosity to this day, and Judy shares candidly with anyone who will listen about how it has transformed her faith. She says that for her, being a tither is the single most transformative discipline for her Christian life. She says, when you respond to the generosity of God, watch out. It might change your life. And I could never put a price tag on getting my son back. I could never put a price tag on getting my marriage back. She said, and what I found is that I keep noticing how generous God is with me, and I want to respond with even more generosity, but no matter how hard I try, I just can't outgive God. Maybe Martin Luther knew that the conversion of the purse is necessary if we're ever to fully experience and appreciate the conversion of our hearts and minds. The key to John and Judy's extravagant generosity was their brokenness. I wonder what's broken in your life. Now, this is not a rhetorical question. Actually, at the end of your pews, there are little bags and there are strips of paper and some pens, and I hope you'll take one or two or however many strips you want and a pen, and you're going to get a little, uh, a minute to reflect on this and write something down, and then during the offering, we will pass baskets around to collect these strips of paper. If you're worshiping online, there's a link to a form where you can leave an anonymous response, and we would love to um, write out a strip of paper for you that can be used. Uh, these are going to work their way into our worship life in the weeks to come, but if you want to know how, you have to come back and worship with us next week. Now, remember, as you do this, 
that we can be honest about our brokenness because God is in the business of transforming all that is broken in our lives. And so I wonder, Northridge Presbyterian Church, if naming our brokenness will be the key to our extravagant generosity too. Just like it was for the woman, just like it was for Judy and for John, and just like it was for Jesus. Amen. Go out into God's world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Return to no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all persons. Love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as you go, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the power of the Spirit bless you and keep you this day and always, always. Amen.